Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. We'll be right back to today's show. But before we do, I want to let you know that you can get a free copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma, when you leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, either on desktop or on your phone. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, look up Think Unbroken, click follow in the top right, and then go and leave a review at the bottom. And when you leave that review, screenshot it and send it over to book.thinkunbroken.com 
where you can upload your contact and mailing information, and we will send you a free copy of this award-winning best-selling book, absolutely free, including shipping. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to upload your screenshot review from Apple Podcast for the Think Unbroken podcast. And until next time, my friend, be unbroken. I'll see you. You're listening to the Think Unbroken podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Unbroken. I'm an author, speaker, coach, and advocate for adult survivors of childhood trauma and abuse. In this podcast, you will learn how to transform your trauma into triumph, turn breakdowns into breakthroughs, and go from victim to being the hero of your own story. You can learn more at thinkunbrokenpodcast.com, and of course, check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at Think Unbroken Podcast. Hey, what's up, Unbroken Nation? Hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world today. Very excited to be back with you with another episode with my guest and friend, Charlie Ray. What's up, my friend? How are you? It's going well, man. Love being here. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for coming out, man. Uh, I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you. Um, Your story, your mission, your journey is admirable. Um, I think about the effort and energy that it takes in one's life for them to transform in the way that you have and that you are currently working towards. And, um, you know, there are people that I, I meet in my life where I get the opportunity to get to know them a little bit better than most people. And I, that's obviously something that started to happen with us. And yeah, it's just an honor to have you here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, to start, tell us something that we need to know about you to understand who you are today. I think with me, looking at my past and then looking to where I'm going, I look at this journey and it's like, I would have never thought that I would have had the ability to do something like this. So it's this strength and fortitude. I've never done anything in my life where I've been this much laser focused on making an impact in this world. And it just, as I thought about that, when you said that earlier, It just blew my mind like, wow, you've been on this journey and you're still going on it and you're still going strong because you want to make a difference. You want to serve and help people. The journey is never ending. No. I I tell people all the time, like when you come into coaching, I'm like, you sign on the dotted line, you better understand this is a rest of your life game. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. I mean, this is just, it is just the game, even though some days it's painful and a lot of days you're like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Take me back. What was, what was childhood? Where did you grow up? What was the experience for you? I was in a suburb in Milwaukee and I grew up one of eight kids. So I was the youngest boy. Uh, just remember growing up and things I noticed, you know, just trying to fit in. I didn't fit in with my other brothers and sisters. I didn't feel like I was connected with them. I was very unique and different. I, I wanted to stand out. Um, I always remember as a little kid, always inserting humor, just always doing something to make everybody laugh. Um, Very big into sports and just, just realized like moving from where I was and how I fit in now and all my brothers and sisters looking at who I am now, I think they're just amazed with that journey and where I've gone because they would have never seen that as a little kid and who I was because I was so outgoing and so vocal and so strong and just 
did whatever I wanted to do. And it was just, I never fit in with them. Why do you think you didn't? Do you feel like, I, I felt like as a kid, I never fit into anything. Part of that's because I'm a contrarian. Part of it is because I just don't care what people think about me. Yeah. Um, what, and that's always kind of been that way. I mean, being the poorest kid in school, yeah. you learn how to turn off your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. so what, what, what part of what element of that, especially in, in the sibling environment where you're like, I just don't fit here. So when I was four years old, I remember I, I was actually run over by a drunk driver. I was running across the street. The drunk driver hit me. I died in my mom's arms. I remember floating up. I saw my mom holding me crying. I could recognize every single one of my neighbors. I started to float up. I saw a white light. And I remember the next thing I was being loaded into the ambulance. From that moment on, before that moment, I'd sit down, we'd read a book, I'd be calm. That moment, I'd have temper tantrums. Well, back in the later 70s, they didn't know what traumatic brain injuries were. So they looked at me as being ADHD and put me on Ritalin. So it was at like four years old. at four years, uh, four or five years old, I was on Ritalin. Yeah, I remember that. Always having, my mom had to crush it up in the spoon and put some sugar just so I could take it because I couldn't swallow pills. And so that was my journey. And so having my other brothers and sisters, the difference, the uniqueness of who I was because of that injury, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand that there was something wrong. They just looked at me as the one that would always cause problems or, or be in trouble or whatever it was. So that was part of the reason where I felt like I didn't fit in because I was the always, I was always the one that would ruin Christmas or whatever. Like that's how I was looked at. That's how I was perceived. How was you ruining Christmas? Oh, I'd get in fist fights with my older brother. I'd just say something. I'd get mad. Like, yeah, stuff like that. I get that one of the. My, my brothers and I, we went to war constantly. I mean, we grew up in a very violent household in general, but in my old house on Welch Drive, there is an outline of one of my little brother's bodies in the drywall. Because <laughs> I slammed him through it when I was like, we we're probably 14 and 15, you know, just yeah. it was like Thanksgiving or Easter. It was all, like the whole family. <laughs> and even though the family was all crazy, the whole family was like at the house and I just like, Blasted him right through the drywall. I do remember like, so my brother TJ was like four years older than me. And I remember all that we battled a lot. I mean, I would do stuff. I remember one time he was chasing me around the swimming pool like two times. And then I just jumped in the swimming pool with all my clothes on because I knew he wouldn't jump in after me. But it's interesting because of all of that, you know, us going head to head all the time. The one thing my brother brought me everywhere if we went if he went to do his skiing for high school he brought me i went skiing on my own he entered i knew all the high school football players all of his college football players he'd bring me in the locker room like so even though we butt heads a lot he brought me and incorporated me in his part of that world which made a closer bond with us obviously yeah yeah i did the opposite as the older brother i did the opposite because i was you know, I was in, I was running the streets, selling drugs, stealing yeah. cars. And I just, I, I remember distinctly being like, I want my brothers away from, mm. I don't want them involved in this. And, yeah. and you know, but that's a form of protection. It was, but I, I didn't have the language then. Right. Yeah. And so it was like, I'm going to do this. So yeah. you're, you're growing up Milwaukee living, you know, uh, what is a seemingly normal life for a kid? Mm -hmm. What, what starts to happen? What starts to transpire in your life as you 
start to go into high school into what's next? I mean, what, what were your visions? What were you trying to do? Like, like break down for me a, a little bit deeper about what, what you saw your life becoming. Yeah, I, I know I, always as a little kid, I wanted to be a cop. And I think it's because it was really cool. But I started noticing going into high school because I went to an all boys Jesuit high school. And I noticed going into that high school, more of the service, right? Serving and helping others. And I always wanted to make a difference. I always wanted to serve and help people. And I, want, I, I actually did later in life after college, I got a criminal justice degree. I went into law enforcement. So I went into law enforcement. I wanted to help people. I was a Milwaukee County deputy sheriff for three years in the Milwaukee County jail, and I could not help anybody. It was totally, it actually made me more negative and cynical as a person than it did helping and serving. And I recognized that and I'm like, I got to get out of this. But you know what? Honestly, and that was the one thing. I'm like, okay, I always wanted to be a cop. Let me try it. After that, I was just job to job. Just, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I was like, I, I had nothing, just felt kind of empty. Like I couldn't do anything. I didn't know what to do. Mm. I think about the, you know, people will sometimes say, you know, never meet your heroes. Think about that, about our dreams sometimes where it's like, you think you know what it is until you touch it. And then you're like, wait, this isn't actually the thing. What, what was it about becoming a cop and becoming a deputy sheriff where you're like, actually hold on, this isn't the thing. The one thing that made me realize I had to get out of it is I remember walking into the building where the jail was and I would have, I would literally be getting sick to my stomach. I was feeling physical pain by going there and I just, I just, it felt wrong. And I just, I'm like, I can't do this. This is not for me. What part of it wasn't for you? I think not making a difference, like literally trying so hard to give advice and what to do. And it's like, nobody cared. Do you feel like, and I want you to like take the space here, right? I mean, yeah. We've got time. What, why do you think nobody cared? Maybe in their environment, maybe, maybe with the people that I was dealing with, maybe nobody cared about them and maybe that's why they were in there. And so for somebody else to try and help them and, and care about them or, or give them advice, maybe they weren't willing to listen. I don't know. I can't be in that space as far as why they did not want help, why they did not want to better their life. I couldn't figure that out. But it was frustrating because it, it was like a revolving wheel over and over again where I wanted to make an impact. I want to help them. But in maybe I did, I never saw the end result because if they'd leave, I don't know what their life turns out like. I didn't see an instant gratification. I didn't see, oh yeah, that helped me out a lot. Thank you so much. You don't see that. So you may have been helping, but maybe I did nothing, but I couldn't see it. I couldn't see I was making impact. I couldn't see I was helping somebody. And so for me, I wanted to see that I was actually could make an impact in somebody's life. Yeah, I, I resonate with that a lot. And uh, I think one of the most difficult parts is recognizing that there's an exponential and reciprocal growth that happens from the impact that we have that you'll never see. It's like planting a seed under a tree you'll never sit under. Yeah. Right. You just don't know. No. I mean, you have no idea. And further, I mean, you never know who's watching. You know, you're one of the things that really captivated me about your story is you 
are putting yourself in this situation? Like, I think there are, I'm going to create a little more context before I ask you this question. There, there are people in the world who are empathic, who are kind, who are servant leaders, who want to make the world a, def- a different place. It's just in us. Like, and I will say this in full transparency. I was not always this way. I was always, I remember in, in high school, kids would make fun of me. I've only had one nickname in my life. Well, I've had two. I won't tell you the other one. But I had one nickname in high school. Oh, kids called me coach, but it was demeaning mm. because I was very much like, come on, as we can do this, like rah, rah. And, and it's interesting how that was really the foundation for now. 20 years later, what I do every single day. And there is something about the drive of being willing to step into who you're supposed to be that is is really powerful. And unfortunately, I think sometimes there's there's catalysts. Like, you know, you're looking at your life where you're going now. And obviously, I'm sure you can guess where I'm going with this, but the audience can. So I, I would love for you to go into like, what is the catalyst that have led you to where you are and the work that you're doing today? Yeah. Um, I remember it was my son, Christopher's eighth grade year and he was 14 years old. He was six foot one, two twenty. literally coached him for years at football. Like this kid was a leader on the football team in eighth grade. So it was really cool because I coached for over 25 years, youth sports. So part of that was coaching my kids. So I got to coach him. But we're going into his eighth grade year and he comes up to us and he goes, hey, I'm, you know, I'm having trouble sleeping. I can't get to sleep. So we called the pediatrician. But this pediatrician was new because the old pediatrician had retired. In fact, his, his old pediatrician was my pediatrician as a kid. So you could tell he was ready to retire. But when Christopher was a toddler, he was put on prescription sleep medicine because he did have trouble sleeping. And so because of that, because of that trouble sleeping, the pediatrician tested him, didn't, maybe didn't look back in his files, I don't know, but diagnosed him with depression. And so she's like, you know, we're going to put him, he's mildly depressed, we're going to put him on Zoloft. And I remember the words Christopher said to me. He said, Dan, I don't feel depressed. Like, I don't feel depressed. Like those words are always there. And I remember as, as the, um, as the, the, the weeks went on into months, like we started noticing that he was wearing long sleeve shirts. And so we're like, you know, Hey, take, go put on short sleeves. Like we're in the house. It's, it's hot. Like put on something else. And he wouldn't do it. So his mom and I got suspicious and literally had to force up his sleeves and he had cut marks on both arms. And I literally just like my heart just sunk. Like I could not help my own child. I did not know how to help him. So we brought him to a psychologist because that's what you do or you think that's what you need to do to help your kids. And so we brought him to the psychologist and she, he talked to Christopher, talked to us. Yeah, he's depressed. Increased his medication. We're out at a funeral. We come home. His mom and I are running out to go get some food. He's staying there with the kids. Uh, Gigi, who is three years old, and Michaela was nine. And so we ran out, got the pizza, and all of a sudden I see my wife flagging me down from the pizza place. I run out to the car. She goes, Michaela's on the phone. 
Christopher's not responding to her. He's not moving. She thinks he's playing a joke. And literally, my heart just sunk. Like, I knew something was wrong. And so we raced home. I remember going through every stop sign, every stoplight. And I remember getting out of the, the car. And distinctly, I don't know, but I just remember smelling that burning smell of the brakes. And we raced down to the, into the house, down to the basement. And Christopher had hung himself. So we had to cut him down, start CPR. He was taken out to one hospital. And then they had to bring him via helicopter out to the local children's hospital. And we were driving out there, you know, and we're discussing, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be okay? And we get out there and before we would even go in, the doctors came out and they're like, this is serious. This is not a good situation. I want to prepare you for this. And he was in the ICU. We went in there. He was hooked up to like all these machines. And three days later, I remember going in and asking the doctor, I said, I want to know what's going on. Like what is happening? And they showed us the brain scans. And so your brain swells up when it doesn't have enough oxygen and you could just see the scan. And I said to him, I said, so he's basically brain dead. And she, he goes, yeah. So we had to take him off life support. And I just remember like his sister felt so guilty. And I remember sitting in the room with her, telling her that her brother's not coming home. Like that was the hardest thing I had to do. Like for her to be put in that situation. Like that was so hard as a father for any of that to happen. Yeah, so something I can't imagine, obviously. I mean, I don't have children, but the people often say the greatest love that you ever have is having a child. And the the greatest pain you'll ever feel is losing them. And you think about prescription drugs particularly, and it's like we, you know, I, I go and I look at like the journey of my family. Most of my family was addicted to prescription drugs. Um, and I watched Oxycontin take my mother's life. Like you, everyone knows now how absolutely dangerous that drug was. And I'm a proponent. I think there's always a space for pharmaceutical mm-hmm. intervention, but I think the hard part is we just don't understand what's going to happen because everyone is so incredibly different. And we, we look at those, those signs of, whatever the thing is that we think we understand and you just don't understand the things that are happening when you consume these drugs. Yeah. And we, we find, and I have found even in my own journey, like I would hide my mom's pills or throw them away or flush them on the toilet. And I don't think it would have mattered, you know, and I I think that, and the reason I'm, I'm prefacing this with what I'm going to ask you is because ultimately there's that space where we have to realize we don't get any control over other people's decisions, no matter what. Yeah. And, and there's something about the letting go of it. You know, I used to, I don't know if I've ever said this before. I used to beat myself up all the time because I felt like I wasn't doing enough to keep my mom sober. It was, dude, it was consummate. It was yeah. whatever I could do to hide her pills, get rid of the alcohol, which eventually led to this place where I was 18. And I told her, I said, I'll never talk to you again. 
And that being one of the singular reasons I'm probably even here today, hardest to this day, hardest decision I've ever made. And when she died, my little brother called and she goes, Hey man, mom's dead. I'm 23 or 24. And I go, okay, cool. Thanks. Have a great day. I hung up the phone and I didn't go to her funeral because I remember feeling, and I even feel to this day, like, and I mean what I'm going to say. I felt like I made the right choice. Mm -hmm. Years later, I was probably like 30, 31. I started having these feelings of being like the weight and the burden of not allotting myself, myself, not her, myself, the forgiveness for something I didn't have control over. And so I guess really the, the first thing I want to ask you is like, what was going through your head in that moment about the role that you potentially play and how have you been able to reconcile that experience now many years removed? Yeah, I think for quite a while I was just in shock. Like I, I remember sitting in the funeral and thinking to myself, why can I not cry at my son's funeral? But I just, I was in shock. People like you're in shock, Charlie. So it was a lot of grief therapy, figuring stuff out, but we look at you know, the role I played back then, I remember I just took action. I just went into action to try and, and save my son. And I noticed that about me. And I noticed that about my kids. They just take action. Like it's just kind of programmed into them, right? And so looking at that moment and then getting into the moment where you're like, what did I do wrong? Why did he do this? Like now I'm blaming myself and figuring out why. And you never have the question. You'll never have the answer why. And so what I needed to do is look at what happened to him and how can I make sure it doesn't happen to anybody else? That's kind of the drive that got underneath me to figure out how could I help other people so they don't have to suffer. So I guess I look at that role then and I kind of flipped it. 180 and say, okay, because of this, what can I do to make an impact in other people's lives? And that's kind of where that led into what I'm doing now. With, with your, your daughter and the responsibility that she felt, which I've actually heard other people say this with their children when these moments happen, how, I guess there's a multiple, multiple fold question here. I had, um, this conversation with a guest recently. And, and so I'm curious about your perspective and what happened in your life. How, how did you navigate the healing journey for yourself with your spouse and with your children? Well, I know, I remember we got into grief counseling immediately. We did that for about three years. Our kids were into grief counseling as well. Just trying to talk it out. I know Michaela felt guilty quite a long time because we discussed it later that she could have done more. And so as a father, I tried to explain to her, like your brother was 220 pounds and six foot one. You were nine years old. You couldn't have done anything more than what you did. And I even told her, I remember saying to her, I'm like, you're my hero that night. I'm like, Michaela, you blew my mind on how you took action and what to do. For a nine-year-old, that blew my mind. So I tried to validate their feelings as far as like, you have a right to feel that way, but
but you're not seeing it from the way I saw it and what you did that night. So I tried to help heal them to make them realize that you're not the cause of this. You didn't have to do more. You did everything that you were supposed to do because that's what was supposed to be done. And you did exactly that. No more, no less. And I took that own advice with myself saying, you cannot take blame for how things were in the past, whether you got angry at him or whatever and nitpick every little thing. You have to look at what you've done now to help keep this family together, to help figure out what we're going to do to move forward and just take one step at a time. And I had to keep telling myself that to get out of that mindset of, of feeling like, you know, you're the cause of this, that maybe you did something to, to do that. Because we all felt that way. What did we do wrong? And so because I was doing that with her, I needed to do that with myself. And I took note of that because that helped in that healing journey too. Yeah. I mean, you're, you didn't do anything wrong. I mean, like no. that, that's the nature of it. I mean, and I, I think that holds true for everything in life. It's like, if you want to be able to move forward, you're not the worst thing that's ever happened or the worst thing that you've ever done. It doesn't always feel like that. Yeah. Right. And most days you kind of want to beat yourself up, but it's like you, you can't, you can't continue to move forward if you don't forgive yourself. Yeah. Grief is such a, I remember sitting in my therapist's office, I'm like very young in this journey. And we were having this conversation and it was like, why am I depressed all the time? He said something interesting to me. He goes, well, depression is because you still feel grief of the past, right? You haven't been able to let it go. And I, I remember being like, yeah, but how do you let go of something like your mother cutting your finger off of being a homeless drug addict? when you're before you can even drive a car. Yeah. How do you let go of people that hurt you so much? And, and he said, you know what you have to do is you have to grieve the loss. You have to be okay with the, the sadness of the experience with the pain that comes along with it. And, and I didn't understand that when he said it to, I only really understood it once I got to the place where like I could actually feel the emotion of Right. You said something that I, I think probably holds true for most people in this situation that, you know, you were in shock. What, what was the journey like from that moment? You're here at the funeral. This is arguably probably one of the most painful moments a human being can have to the feelings and emotions start to show up. Yeah. I remember that. Um, there was like a numbness for a, like a, a, quite a while, just feeling numb, just not knowing what to do. And we had a, a good community, like the church people came and helped. They brought food, like that helped because we couldn't even think like trying to deal with the situation. I remember Michaela had office school the rest of the, the rest of that semester. They just gave her off. Don't worry about anything. Just go do what you need to do. And just trying to put step to step together. And I just remember, I'm like, and I don't even know, remember why I did this. Cause I was never a drinker. I'm like, you know, what? I'm just going to start drinking and see if that helps. Like I actually turned to something to realize like, you know, maybe it'll help. Obviously it didn't, that, that did not do anything for me. And I stopped it quickly. It was, I wasn't like an addiction. I just realized that, man, it's 10 o'clock in the morning and you're 
making yourself a screwdriver. Like, why are you doing this? Like, you've got two kids that you need to physically see that they're suffering. And when you look at them, like, that's that spark that just kind of like, okay, I got to be here for these kids. I've got to start doing something to take care of myself. Not only the grief, but I was also 355 pounds. So I made the decision to get a gastric bypass surgery too, because I need to be here for these kids. I am not going into the grave to make sure that they have to sit at another funeral like this. And so I started taking care of myself. I started figuring out what do I need to do? And I was unemployed at the time because I was around when that crash hit, uh, the housing crash hit, and we lost all of our contracts for the jobs that I was in at the time. And I was unemployed. Like, I just had to put these pieces together. I had to start working on myself. I had to start figuring stuff out. And there was no wrong or right reason or way of doing it too, right? Because it's like, grief is so different for everyone else. And it's so interesting being at the funeral. Some of the things that people said, I noticed like, oh, I know how you feel. I lost my mother. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm sorry you lost your mother, but you don't know how I feel. And so because of that experience, I never say that to somebody. I have no idea how you're feeling because it's your grief and it's so different. And then you hear the, the line of, you know what, time will help heal it and it doesn't. Like there'll be multiple times a day that I cry because of what happened to my son, but I believe that pain ignites this fire to like be empathetic to other people. And so when I'm able to be empathetic to that person, I'm able to understand their pain and I want to help them and I want to serve them. And so that's kind of that fire that I learned what I'm trying to do to help other people. And I need that in my life. That's how I, re that's how I rationalize it, right? I need that in my life because that's part of my journey. And I don't want to forget that. Mm -hmm. We do need it. And, and the rationalization, like, well, well, the brain's purpose is to find meaning in everything, mm -hmm. right? And even the most painful of experiences, you know, it's funny you say that. I don't, I don't mean to laugh. It's just, it, it no. makes me kind of laugh to think that people probably send you at the funeral and you're like, yeah, see what are you talking about, dude? Yeah. You know, and, and people will do that to me sometimes because they hear my story and they know about my background. I'm like, you like, no, you grew up with both your parents in the suburbs and went to yeah. Harvard. <laughs> right. And I'm like, but that's okay. Cause I appreciate the effort. What, what is there's, there's this moment, right? Where you had to make a decision about what you're going to do moving forward in your life. Mm -hmm. Most people, I, I would have to assume in, in the work that you do, you probably see this much closer than I'm extrapolating just based off of conjecture, really, cause I don't know it or lived it that most people lose a child and everything about their life is over. Why do you think that happens to them? And why has it not happened to you? Well, Christopher's death was actually just the start of what happened. So after Christopher died, actually the day of, I was having my gastric bypass. So it was about eight months later, I get a call from my mom and she's crying on the phone. And she goes, Terry died. That's my sister's husband. They have a, a brand new baby, age of 40, had a massive heart attack and died in his sleep. So on my day of my surgery, which is pretty much was free because of the insurance that we had to pay for Christopher, 
I had to have that surgery. So they put him to sleep or they, they put him, you know, the, they had the funeral. And so after that, I get another call about four months later. Your dad's got lung cancer. So he's going through chemo. Well, he passed away four months after that. About a month after my dad passed away, I found out my mom was having all this bleeding issues. And I'm like, mom, you got to go to the hospital. And she goes, I don't want to go. And so I called the on-call nurse. I said, will you please call my mom? She's having all this bleeding, all these issues. Will you please tell her to go to the hospital? So she called my mom. My mom called me back. She goes, okay, I'll go. So I went and picked her up, brought her out to the hospital. And I remember saying, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There, she went for all these testings. We're sitting outside. The doctors are outside the office, and I remember them coming in and said, "You have cancer." My mom died a few months after that, but I remember in that hospital room just breaking down, crying. Like, and actually, at my mom's funeral, it just—I had no feeling. Like the feeling was gone for me. And then, a short while after that, I ended up getting divorced. Because there's like a really high, you know, it just everything changed. And I was at a low place. And I would remember sitting at my parents' house because I moved into my parents' house because that was, we're going to sell it. And I was living there. I remember making a comment on Facebook. I'm like, I'm done. All of a sudden, I get a knock on the door. The police come in, take me down to mental health because of the statements that I'm, I don't want to live anymore. And then when I was down at mental health, and then I finally got released, they understood like, that's a lot for anyone to deal with. And I'm like, Charlie, you need to start fixing this. Not only about yourself, but like you've got two kids here. Actually, at that time, three kids, because Grayson came along later. So it was like, you've got three kids that you need to take care of. You need to start figuring this out. And literally, there's no wrong or right reason to do this or way to do it. It's just one foot in front of the other and you're going to fail and you're going to fail a lot but you know what you step up and you take the next step you fall down and you get back up because the one thing i learned after all those deaths and the divorce is that nothing is going to knock me down again because i went through the worst i don't care what you do i'm going to keep standing back up and i'm going to keep fighting because that pain that i had to go through in my life that was the worst that i've ever experienced and hope that I'll ever experience again. So nothing is going to compare to that. So I'm just going to stand back up and do the next thing and keep moving forward. It almost seems insurmountable though. You know, I mean, and I, I see when people will post things like that on social, it's like, it is a cry for help. I mean, you know, like, mm -hmm. like somebody please help me. Yeah. Right. I, I get it. They did. It makes sense to me. And someone, thank God someone did. Right. But you, you look at it and it's like, who could blame like this is a really dark thing to say but yeah who could blame you if you yeah. took your own life i mean god yeah I mean, that is so much pain yeah so much hurt when i was when i was 25 and i obviously share this openly but i put a gun in my mouth i was like i'm so done the pain the hurt the suffering 
the in in this phase of my life at like you 350 pounds smoking two packs a day drinking myself to sleep i was like i don't give a anything is better even though i'd made like a million bucks and i had a nice car and i was having sex with all these women i was like this i'm over it (laughs) and it's like life ultimately life is going to life that is that is a moniker that really played a special role for me and and in that it's given me a lot of freedom just to continue to step forward into what's next and and i'm so fortunate in a lot of ways that i had that experience at 25 because it's allowed me to be here and openly have these really difficult conversations because why would you not want to end your life why would you not want to make the pain go away and make the hurt and the suffering and i think about this a lot now especially with what i do is how do you turn the the pain into purpose right but in the moment like you don't like i never no. I was like i'm gonna do this one no day. like this wasn't on the agenda it was just like okay cool if i can if i can just brush my teeth today yeah and it, and yeah. Real, yeah i mean i was just like well i was like can i just get up and brush my teeth? yeah just get out of but it, it was a step and it was a step. yeah and that's the thing that i come to but but i want to go back into this because i there's just this curiosity I have because you're closer to this world than I am, unfortunately, obviously. But why why is it that when families have a loss like this, that some people just forever their life is gone? Like what can you this is gonna be a hard question probably to answer. How do you like what is it that happens? Like when, when you lose your child, like what is happening to you? Man, I don't even know how to put that into words. It's like, I, I've never felt a pain like that. It gets so strong, but like, but you said it before. It's like the greatest love is having a child, right? Like you said that and then the greatest loss is losing that child. Well, I did lose that child and it was the hardest thing and the most painful thing I've ever gone through in my life. Like nothing will compare to it. Like everything else that happens to me going forward, nothing compared to that. That's why I get back up. But the one thing, I had three other kids. And so I need to step up for them because there was no way in I was going to let Michaela think that she could have done something to fix that scenario. So I wanted to be there for them. I want to, I want that to show them how you can go from down here and keep stepping and moving forward. So I had to be a role model for my kids. I had to keep fighting. I had to keep doing, I screwed up a lot. You know, there's no book on parenting. And if you're reading a book on parenting, I'd throw it away because each kid is so different. So there's no wrong or right way. But the one thing there is, is just, I'm just going to try to be the best role model, the best example, keep fighting for them that I can. What did you have to change within yourself to get to that place? Man, that was a while ago. I don't, I don't remember a concrete thing that I had to change, but I remember like these habits that were not serving me needed to change, right? Like obviously having two dinners a night, that was gone because I had to take care of my kids. Granted, I had a gastric bypass surgery, but it's like, no, you need to eat healthier, okay? If, if my goal was wrapped around being there for my kids and being the best that I could be, okay, start eating healthier. 
okay, uh, keep trying to work and find a way to make more money, do fun things with them. Like it's just things, basic things that I remember that my parents always did for us, take us on vacations, do different things, go to our sporting events, support them. So you're just role modeling what you had in your life as a parent or the opposite, what you had the lack of and you wanted to provide to your children because you didn't receive it. And so it was just, okay, what can I do? And I didn't know, man. I did not know what to do. I just tried to do the best I could with all the information that I had either growing up or being an adult. And there is especially no playbook on like losing a child and then having to take care of three other kids on top of it. Like, I think through for years, I was just an autopilot. Like, I didn't know. I just did in the moment what I thought I should do. So there was no real, like, concrete thing like, oh, I should do this. I should do this. That came a lot later as I grew and started to work on myself more. But for years, it was just on autopilot. When When you think about, if you were to pinpoint something that, was the most transformational decision you made, what would it have been? Because I, I think sometimes it can literally be like one thing. Right? Yeah. When, when I go back and I look at this catalyst for me, it was like, go and tell the truth in therapy. Yeah. Like that became honestly, dude, the cornerstone for everything. Because I, w- I realized I was just such a good liar. Like, and lying to myself, lying to my girlfriends who didn't know each other existed. So I'm like, <laughs> siblings lying to you know the people and the bill collectors would call because i put myself 50 grand in debt like lying 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 like all the yeah it was killing me it was literally eating me alive and i was like just go tell the truth in there once yeah even a sentence right even a sentence yeah and so i'm curious was there one thing yeah the one thing that kind of saved my life and started moving me in the right direction was that gastric bypass. It was the best decision, even though it was pretty painful to go through it, but it was the best decision I made. But I made the decision for my kids. And so it was wrapped around everything that I did moving forward was going to be for my kids, no matter how hard it was. But seeing the pain and what they had to go through. Actually, I'll go back to the moment in the hospital where I had to tell Michaela that her brother was not coming home. That was the switch that I knew I had to do something different. I knew that I had to figure out a way how to be the best dad that I could be. That was very, very hard to see her break down and cry because you don't, you just lost a child and now your other child is like devastated that her brother's not coming home. That was definitely, I, I'll, I'll point to that moment was my moment like you need to get together for you it's it's so fascinating how sometimes the rock bottom isn't of your own doing yeah and you know there i've i've interviewed everybody and we all agree you have to have a rock bottom yeah for things to change it sucks yeah it's unfair it is arguably the most painful thing you'll ever experience but it's not, I don't know why it's necessary, but it's just necessary. You have to, I think you have to have it. I constantly am like, how do you mitigate the risk of the rock bottom? How do you create change? How do you give, because like you probably had opportunities to be that dad. 
Yeah. Many, many, many times yep. before that moment. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say for granted because I don't yeah. know, but that's yeah. my thought is like I took being a brother for granted. Yeah. I took being a leader for granted. I took being an entrepreneur for granted constantly until I lost everything. And I'm like scrounging around trying to make it. And you said something I think was really interesting is like, even after this decision, there were still failures. Yeah. And people think often like, I made the decision, life is going to be easier now. And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Life is actually just about to start. Yeah. What were some of those failures for you? I remember like when I, I remember getting out and trying to like do my own business, Facebook marketing. Right. So I was trying to do the Facebook marketing thing, failure after failure after failure, but I stuck with it for a while. Right. I'm like, maybe this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. So it's stuff like that. The one thing I, I look back at, even with my kids, I'd learned things as I failed to be a better father. So as I moved forward and took my steps forward and my kids. Now that's even harder is to watch your kids fail and try to let them hit rock bottom as a parent without interjecting and telling them what to do, but guiding them with your own failures and telling your kids, look, this is what happened to me. And you just tell a story because the kids always loved my stories. I was always a storyteller. So they loved my story. So I would tell them of my failure of what they went through. And it lessened their pain as a child or even going into high school, sharing with them. I remember one time my son, Grayson, and I said a few words to him. I go, Grayson, because he was going to have a friend come over, but he was being annoying. So I wasn't going to invite him. I said, you know what, Grayson? What about if you're his only friend? And now he's really sad. And, you know, and I know that's not the type of person you are. I know that you are a person that wants to do things with other people and make sure that they feel good too. What do you think that he may be going through that if you said no to him? And all he said, yeah, you know what? You're right, dad. So it's just, it's stuff like that. And I wouldn't have known how to say that to him if I didn't fail and learned what to say to my kids or anybody else, right? Because when you show your failures, you're authentic, you're vulnerable, and they know that you're like, dad's just human too. Like, I get it. Like, that's interesting because I remember growing up, my dad went through a rough childhood. I, I found this out later in life that my dad was living on his, own, on his own at 16, still going to high school. And I remember my dad would tell me stories about the Navy that were pretty like gruesome, but I never remember one story of my dad's childhood. So it was really interesting to put those pieces together. And now knowing what my dad went through, I was like, my dad was an awesome dad after knowing that what he went through and how he handled himself in our situation, I blew my mind. So that was a lesson I learned in itself. Yeah. Vulnerability is, and I I literally just wrote this today. I was in my journal. That's how I start my days. I go out on the back patio here at the, the home office and I sit there with my journal and I read a book and right now I'm reading a course of miracles. Um, and I'm sitting there and this word vulnerability just starts popping in my head. And I'm like in the journal and like talking about like this past relationship and this thing that I've been overcoming about 
recognizing forgiveness in myself in a deeper capacity and forgiveness being for a lot of different things, man, for selling drugs to people when I was a kid, for cheating on my girlfriend, for, you know, um, stealing cars, forgiveness for not being the best leader, the best entrepreneur, the best take the, again, those things I was taking for granted, the forgiveness for myself, for being a brother who communicated through violence. Like we talked at the top of the show, because that's how I learned. Like, and then I realized as I'm like journaling and I'm in this, and this is literally this morning, I was like, I wrote down vulnerability as the cornerstone of human connection because vulnerability is the only space in which we actually can bond. Yeah. Because there's so much posturing in the world. There's so much I'm great and I'm perfect. And, and you're like, where are you a human? Where are you fallible? And, you know, like you said about the book, there's no, you should throw the books away on parenting. I'm like, you should probably throw away all the books, right? Yeah. Because if you really want to heal, you really want to grow, you have to be honest and vulnerable. Yeah. And I, and I think about that constantly. It's like, here you are for men, especially, and we'll speak as men because I'm yeah. a man, you are too. And I don't know what it's like to be a woman. And what I know as being a man is like, we are taught to not be vulnerable. We are taught to not share those stories that can change our children's lives. We are taught to suck it up and not be emotional and not walk into the world as a person who's hurt or wounded, but instead like we're strong. Like sometimes you're not. Yeah. Sometimes you're just not. What, what role in this journey has vulnerability really played for you? Everything. Everything. I remember when I first got my start helping people, I was driving Uber and Lyft. And I would tell everyone that story and what I did to help people. And so I was literally healing people in the back of my Uber eight minutes in, whether they were like afraid of, uh, they had the fear of flying or something else happened. I was like, boom, right on every single time. But I told that story first. And you know what? The one thing as a man being that vulnerable and telling that story, every single person, and I'm talking everyone and mostly women were able to open up to me because I shared it first. I shared that I could be vulnerable. And so when you have that connection to realize whether it's another man or it's a woman, but I definitely noticed in women that when I was able to share that vulnerability, they were willing to share things that they've never told anyone before. So vulnerability is the key to everything, to be the authentic human being that you're going to be. And if you're truly in about serving and helping other people and you're able to be vulnerable, you will be able to serve and help other people because they will be vulnerable with you too. Just like you said, when you went to the um, therapist's office, I'm going to finally tell the truth for once. And then I bet it became more easier as it went to be vulnerable because you weren't being judged or maybe things from childhood didn't come up because that person wasn't judging you because they were trying to help you. Yeah, And, you know, but that's the, it became the domino effect, right? Because this one moment, I mean, God, that must have been what, four, 13 years ago now? Actually, it was 12 years ago. That one moment has led to this moment. And everything in between that has been incredibly difficult. Yeah. 
But the one thing I can tell you about it is it's allowed me the space to be me and not hide. And it's like, this is who I am. Yeah. Whether it's in podcasting or on stages or dating in relationships or like, this is me. Yeah. And I'll share it sometimes maybe overly, but I'm like, whatever. I'd rather, you know, more than not. Knowing. And, and that, that whole thing is like, there is something I think beautiful that's happening just in the scope of humanity where the shift is happening, where we can actually have the conversations, where we can be emotional, where we can talk about the depths of this darkness. But I, I also realize like you can lead a horse to water. Yeah. Right. And, and that's kind of the old adage. I can't force this out of anyone. I can't make anyone sit and and do anything that i can't do for me first yeah and so when you're when you're leading and you're serving it so much of it is is like yeah this is my story yeah i will say this just full transparency there's things i will never tell another human being on this podcast yeah it just won't happen yeah don't believe those things serve humanity in any practical way yeah they are things that i've worked through that i've gone therapy and healed over yeah i just don't feel like they're gonna fit it yeah and maybe I'm wrong. You know what I mean? I think about the check. I'm wrong. Maybe that thing that happened would benefit one person who could possibly ever relate. I, I think that in the day to day of this, the more vulnerable we can be, the the more freedom we're going to have. What what role has vulnerability played for you in the relationship with your children? Yeah, that's. I don't know because it it's like. I don't want to say the word normal. I don't really like that word because there is really no normal, but with everything that my kids went through and how much they shut down and how much they wouldn't share. But the one thing I did notice is that when I stopped caring, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but when I stopped putting emotion behind the things that my kids told me or may have been afraid to share with me because they thought that I would judge them or I would say anything. And I wouldn't. So I stopped having any emotion to it. And I would turn the question back to them. I'm like, well, how does that make you feel? And since I started doing that, since I stopped reacting to what they told me, rather than just listening and ask them questions on how, if it's how you feel about it, or are you okay with it? Whatever that may be, they share anything with me. They don't hold anything back because I stopped putting emotion behind the things that they were telling me to get them to, because when I put emotion into it, I get angry or upset or, or whatever, start raising my voice. What are they going to do? Shut down. They're not going to share with you. So I stopped putting emotion to what they told me and validated how they were feeling. There's nothing that they hide from me. Do you think that your reactions to those things were like ego driven? I think they were actually, they were trauma driven because I, you learn your programming happens at a young age and you see your parents fighting back and forth for the longest time. I remember getting in relationships because I'd always see my mom and dad fighting or arguing about money or whatever. And I remember for the longest time when I would get upset or mad, I would yell and scream because that's what my parents did. So when I stopped putting emotion into it, like, I don't have to yell and scream. I can talk to you just like this and ask you questions without putting emotional tone to it. It's so much easier and it's so much easier and better to communicate with somebody without having emotion. Yeah. I have a, I would caveat that like having negative emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, I, yes, I 
not to put words in your mouth, but that's what came to mind. Yeah. Um, I, I remember having this really distinct shift one day pinning into what you just said. I was, I was seeing this woman, I'm like 26 at the time, 27. So it's right around the beginning of this healing journey. And all we did was yell at each other. That's all we did. Like we drank and we had sex and we yelled at each other. That was the whole relationship. And I, rem I remember one day I was like, I don't like the way this feels. I don't like yelling. Yeah. I actually hate it. Like it's my number one. Like it's a hard line negotiable. You're not allowed to yell at me ever. And I won't yell at you. Yeah. And I have a rule. You do it one time, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk about it. There will not be a second time because I realize like you have the ability to either control your emotions or your emotions control you. This is a very, very distinct and fine line because you have to be able to name them, to look at them, to be honest about them. And I think that's one of the things we, we battle with most difficultly with, with the most difficulty is just naming it. Why, why yeah. are you mad? Yeah. Why are you crying? Why, why do you yeah. punch a hole through the wall right now? Right. And yeah. not run from it. What was your journey like from running from emotions to stepping into them and allowing them to exist? Scary. Right. Cause you had to change it. So if you're sitting there and it's like, you're used to doing something a normal way or your normal way, whether it's yelling or screaming or arguing, whatever it may be to have to realize, well, this is really, like you said, I don't like yelling and screaming at my kids. Like, why am I even doing this? You know, so to, to get to that point of realizing, getting to the point where you can consciously say, okay, are you getting upset? Like before even now I've just programmed myself, right? Like before, it's like I had to consciously think, okay, hold on, stop, let's talk about this, don't start screaming. Now it's like I don't have any emotion. They could tell me anything, and I'm like not going to have any emotion about it. Like, okay, how does it make you feel? And I may even joke around with it and say something funny just to put them in a better mood. Or, to, or like I said, share a story with them about what, what happened with me. So that vulnerability, that ability to change who you are, and if you don't like who you are, you know, I started making a list of all these things that I was doing that was not serving not only me, but the relationships I were I was in. And so when I did that, I'm like, oh my God. Like you write it on paper, it's like it's all negative versus you can't think anything positive. So you start with one. You start with one thing and you just start working on it. How and there's no wrong or right reason to work on it, right? Like we fail at it. Okay, this didn't work. Okay, I'm gonna try it this way. And then as as you get those wins it's easier to transpose all those negatives over into more positive wins because you're, you taught yourself that consciously. And now it's a habit. I think about how you leverage positivity every day. And I'm not a, I'm not a, an optimist. I'm, I'm not a negative. I'm just a realist. Mm -hmm. Look at life, try to be very neutral about it. When, so I, I've lost my three best friends. They were murdered. My, my, my closest best friend, close as a brother, Seth, he and I literally did everything together. And when I, when he, when he was murdered, I remember distinctly just being mad and all of the things, the feelings, the emotions that I had about him and our relationship were all bathed in negativity. And then I started thinking 
few years ago on on an anniversary. I think it was his seventh anniversary of his death. Um, I was thinking to myself, like, I did everything with this guy from the time we were twelve years old. Might have been eleven, eleven, twelve years old till we were twenty. Everything, all the time, man. All, all of, a lot of firsts was with this guy. They even have a hat too that we got together. Mm. Uh, and I started thinking about where's the positive memories I had with Seth. Where are the things that where we did and had these experiences were beautiful and great and powerful and life affirming. And I just started thinking about it day in, day in, day in, because it's really easy when we lose people to bathe in the negative. Yeah. And so I'm really curious. What what is one of your favorite positive memories of Christopher? I remember when I was coaching him in football and I was teaching the kids like how to do a snap, right? So he got down and he was the center. And as soon as I put my hands down there to snap the ball, he farted. And everyone started laughing. It was it was it was funny. It was hilarious. That was just one memory that was really, really funny, but I remember another memory, like I said, I went to an all boys Jesuit high school up in Milwaukee and he was, he applied for it too. And I, when I went out to the mail and this was his eighth grade year, so this is the year that he passed away. I remember going out to the mail and seeing the envelope. I didn't even let him open it. I ripped it open and I come running into the house. I'm like, Chris, you got in, you got in. Like he scored like a 97% on the entrance exam. I was like so excited as a father and so proud of him. Like, I, I know he was supposed to open it, but I was just so excited that I ran in and he actually, him and his mom were laughing at me because she's like, why did you let him open it? Like, <laughs> so you're more excited than he is. Like, We, we take lessons away from every person that we meet. Mm-hmm. People on the street and elevators, our family, our friends, our spouses, but especially the people that impact our lives the most. And so. What's one lesson that you think Christopher has taught you? The lesson that Chris taught me is that I need to feel pain in other people to realize that they're hurting. And that pain motivates me to serve and help other people. So it's kind of like because he passed away, I need to feel that pain but it motivates me to serve and help other people. And I believe this is my true calling because when I can make an impact in somebody's life, it is the best feeling in the world to know that I was able to help them just a little bit or a lot, whatever it is. But I would not have that if it wasn't for Christopher. So that is like the biggest gift that he gave to me. That's powerful. I resonate with that so much. I mean, without all of the pain, I would not be here and you know, yeah. come back to that concept, turn, turn your pain into purpose. And sometimes the pain is really, really, really painful, but it, it, if you leverage it, it can change your life forever. Yeah. Travis, it's been an amazing conversation, my friend. Um, before I ask you the last question, can you tell everybody where they can find you and learn more about you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can go to my website. It's charlierayraythehealer.com. So if you go on there, it's otherwise on social media, it's Coach Charlie Ray. Amazing. And of course, guys, go to thinkunbrokenpodcast.com. Look up Charlie's episode where we'll have this and more in the show notes. Of course, we have a tradition on this show. We end with a question I've asked hundreds and hundreds of people. And I'll ask you as well. What does it mean to you to be unbroken?
take your pains that you have in life and leverage it to be better because those are all of our lessons. Everything that we do in life, we're learning. But the stuff that's painful, that can be the greatest gift that you ever get. But you got to take that pain and leverage it. And that's what it means to be unbroken. Beautifully said, my friend. Thank you so much for being here. Unbroken Nation, thank you for listening. Please check us out on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your shows. Do us a favor, share this with a friend or somebody special to you so that we can continue to step forward in healing the world, ending generational trauma, transforming trauma to triumph, breakdowns to breakthroughs, and to continue to help people become the hero of their own story. And until next time, my friends, be unbroken. I'll see ya. You're listening to the Think Unbroken podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Unbroken. I'm an author, speaker, coach, and advocate for adult survivors of childhood trauma and abuse. In this podcast, you will learn how to transform your trauma into triumph, turn breakdowns into breakthroughs, and go from victim to being the hero of your own story. You can learn more at thinkunbrokenpodcast.com, and of course, check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at Think Unbroken Podcast. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a wait list for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.